So I want to begin in chapter 2. We'll read verse 13 and wrap up our time together in these letters to the Thessalonians, reading all the way to the end of the third chapter. Beginning in verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day, excuse me, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say, In this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. My prayer is that it might be established even in these moments together. We've been walking through this text, this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this church, and we've seen in this, uh, in the first text, we saw very clearly what's expected of leaders in the church, but then he ends with a, a pretty strong exhortation and some imperatives based on their standing in Christ, and we see what the church ought to expect of its members. What should you expect of believers? And so in the first five verses, Paul shows Uh, what they hope to accomplish should be connected to these first few things in the first five verses. What they did in work ought to be connected. The people of faith are prayerfully expectant. They're proclaiming and advancing the gospel, obeying and receiving the word, and unwavering in their trust in Christ. And apart from these things, anything that they would do that they would call work would be in vain. If ultimately this isn't their aim, then what would happen in the work of their hand or their mind or their own heart would be, would be ultimately distracting or pointing away from what Christ had done and the work that he had entrusted for his word to infiltrate the nations through them. So last week we saw how this, this set of commands, beginning in verse 6, about work is based upon and connected to 
what it is that we believe about what we're called to be in the world. And we see two clear expectations in these last bit, uh, this last series of commands. One is that we live as one under command. And you saw three different places there. He says, look, I'm commanding you. Verse 6, uh, right after he had just said, look, th- these, these things ought to be uh, things you imitate us with. We command you in verse 12. Verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage. If you're not following these commands in verse 10, you get the picture? And in some sense, this is as serious as Paul gets from the first and second letter. And, and, and he gives two different orders. Did you catch that? And if you're going to name drop, you're going to want to do it like Paul does it. He drops Jesus' name twice. I command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That'll get anyone's attention. I command you in the name of Jesus, do this thing. And then he goes on for a good deal speaking about what work looks like. Specifically, as we see the second thing, that believers ought to take ownership of the gospel testimony of the people around them. This is expected of us. It's expected of this church that they would know the difference. They would know what it looks like for the gospel to infiltrate their work, and then we would respond accordingly. And what I think you see is this. One of the quotes you'll hear us say on a regular basis is from uh, a theologian and missiologist and missionary to, uh, to India by the name of Leslie Benubigan. And he gives us a quote that is very helpful for us. And he says it very clearly that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Now that's a fancy theological word. Don't care if you remember it or not, but I do care if you remember what it means. In other words, the church is the modern translation of the gospel. It's the way we interpret the gospel. If you want to know who Jesus is and what he's like, if you want to know the good news of God's work for us in Christ, the way that it's translated to the world is by looking at the church. And there's something going on here that he's saying, look, there's something that's been entrusted to you that you want to guard tightly. And then he speaks very strongly. Look, if people are missing out on this, you're going to want to distance yourself from them. We saw this last week that ultimately work is not evil, but instead we are simply imaging God and his creative, sustaining, restorative, and redemptive nature. Every time we work, we're demonstrating something about God. And we saw this last week. We are imaging God in work. So I want to kind of build on that and then kind of wrap up with the way he encourages us with the last few things. I think he models something for us that I want to take a little time and, and say, let's, let's model what Paul's doing here in the life of our church, and then he lands on that same command in verse 13. Don't grow weary and separate yourself from people who, who kind of wander away from this thing that God's called us to be and to do. So, last week we saw that one of the most difficult things uh, that our culture kind of grants to us that, that hurts our ability to understand what biblical work is, is capitalism. And so therefore, we tend to think work is simply what you get paid for. Now, we we talked about this. I'll I'll come back to it in just a moment. But like, there's a sense in which that falls apart, right? In fact, I dare you to tell, say, like a mom who's at home raising kids and not getting paid for it that she's not working. I dare you. If you think I'm wrong, put this one to the test. Yes, you'll thank me. There's something missing, right? If work is just what you get money for, then then like all of a sudden we have a, a, a deep tension with things that are valuable that you never get paid for. And for us, when we want to image God in the way that he's creating things, sustaining things, holding them together, restoring things, fixing things, redeeming them, and putting them back in their rightful place, most of the time when you do this, when you genuinely pour yourself out in this kind of work, you don't get paid for it. And so there's a sense in which you could make a whole lot of money and never, ever, ever display the image of God's redemptive and restorative purpose in the world. In fact, you can make a lot of money by doing a lot of damage, doing the opposite. And so the second barrier, I think, is not just capitalism, but I'm going to throw this one at you. Industrialization can cloud our view of what it means to work in a way that images God. I pushed heavily on the way that like, money 
can be a motivation that's not helpful. And the way that these people apparently were believing something about Jesus that was causing them to be kind of a leech, to, to basically like start to mooch off of other Christians. Well, hey, if Jesus is coming back, then, then I don't need to work. I just need to do some of these things. Or hey, if Jesus is not coming back, well, then I really don't have to mess with this and you can take care of me. And people were taking advantage of one another. And so he starts to address this. And he gives a picture, a theology of work. He commands them, this is what you ought to do. And if the church is declaring the gospel, it's the modern translation of the gospel for the world to see, then one of the most important places we can see this is in work. And one of the most important influences over how we define work over the last few centuries is industrialization. Here's what I mean. For the majority of you in this room, and this is tricky, right? Because we're talking about work and having a, a, like, we're emphasizing the thoughts about work and what the Bible teaches us about work. And most of you live in Sioux Falls. The only reason you're here is because of work. You came to this city. You're currently in this zip code because of work. And someone will say, well, you don't need to tell us about work. We already know. But I want to encourage you to think about what it is that you do, what you pour yourself into, and the extent to which it images the nature of God. And one of the ways that we've been probably clouded in our thinking about this is the growth of the industrialized modern world. So, ask yourself this question. The job that you think you have, right? This is one way to think of it. Would you have had that job three centuries ago? Does your job exist 300 years ago? Does your job exist 200 years ago? And then you begin to think, okay, so, so the way that we understand what we do in the world is largely affected by some things that have transpired in just the last few centuries. In the grand scheme of human history, no one's done this. No one. And he gives a picture of what sacrificing work, self-sacrificing work looks like. And I want to get at something here that's Timeless. Something that in the next 300 years, if your job phases out and doesn't exist anymore, right? I mean, none of you, I, I could be wrong, but like none of you operate an elevator, right? None of you stands in an elevator and waits to push the button, right? That's not a thing. It doesn't happen anymore. You get it? And so in 300 years, I want to give us a picture, a theology of work that will outlast trends and changes in technology, that we would pour ourselves into things deeply for the purpose of modeling something. So we command you, brothers, now to distance yourself, right? Taking ownership over the testimony to the gospel that we see in work. Think seriously about this because you, you're going to want to spend time around people who do this right, and you're going to want to be careful and distance yourself from people that don't. Ultimately, they're just not telling the same story, right? And it may not necessarily be something that like, you intentionally have to say, stay away. It may just be something by the nature of your work will happen on its own. And there's a sense in which if, if when, when you think about what you need to do this week, if you find yourself thinking, I'm going to image God in what I do, then that will already distance you from the majority of the people right now who are preparing for the work week. If what you're thinking has to be accomplished this week is about you, you've missed a bigger picture that's more beautiful. And here's what I would argue. The way we image God is the way we see the ways in which we testify to his character in everything that we do. And some of you heard me say this before. Every good endeavor in the world at its heart is built on something that God has designed and created to happen in all the world. Right? So some of you maybe work in financial services. Right? You work at a bank. Okay, well, what's a bank for? What does a bank do? Right? There's a sense in which a bank exists for security, right? If you're a bank, I should be able to hand you my money and you have a vault somewhere, right? Something is going to protect that money and you're going to grant, my, you're going to grant me security with my money, right? You're going to take care of it. Well, ask yourself this question, this question. Who invented such a concept? Security. Who thought of that? Who thought of a thing like security? Like the, and, and who made people to want something like security? Where did it come from? Why do people want it? Why do people desire it? And, and what you'll see is that underneath every single sector of the economy, if you dig down deep enough, is someone reflecting or imaging something deep about the character and nature of God. And so if you're in a banking industry, I'll just give this is one example. Like you're, and you're like, man, I hate my job. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want this job. I want a new job. Well, I want to encourage you, stop. You, you're missing. 
you're missing the deepest, most meaningful thing that you do. You grant people security, right? You're imaging God. Do you know who even made that profitable, who designed people like, to want that? And when you do that well, when you offer security to people, you're telling something. You're telling the world a parable about the character and nature of God. And here's what I would tell you. Under every single sector of the economy, if you dig deep enough, you'll see this. Even in the seediest, most evil, and awful places in the world. Think. Think like prostitution. What's it based on? What's the demand that drives that industry? There's a desire for comfort, right? A desire for pleasure. Maybe a desire for companionship. Have you thought? Who invented those things? Who even thought them up? Who even thought that these would be good things that would give joy to human beings? Do you get it? You get it? And, and of course, now, then do we take those desires, those God-given plans, and, and, we, and, and do we leverage them for his glory? Not often. And that's, that's where you see it break down, right? And when you take something good that God has designed for people to desire, to be fulfilled by, so that we would glorify him and love him and trust him, and when we take those things and rip them out of those structures, they become the most destructive things around, don't they? Instead of imaging God's restorative work, what do they do? They start destroying it. They destroy people. So don't miss, under even the, mo even, even the most corrupt sectors of the economy, of the workforce, God is imaging himself. We, obediently, get the opportunity to leverage those things for his glory and for the joy of his people. Or, you can take something good that God has designed for human flourishing for his glory, and you can destroy yourself and everyone around you with it. So don't miss this. I want to encourage you as we think about work and how we can work hard, I want you to see there's a bigger thing God's doing in and through what it is that you do. And that has nothing to do with whether or not, like it has nothing to do with whether you get paid for it or not. And so ask yourself that question. What do I have to do this week? What do I have to accomplish? That's your work. And then ask yourself this, does it image God? Does it bear his image? Does it testify to something, right? You fix stuff. Okay, awesome. Do you know who likes to fix stuff? I don't know, like sin and the brokenness and fallenness of humanity. You get it? Like this, you're, do, you're doing the thing. You like to feed people. I don't know, you work at a restaurant. Guess who likes to sustain people and, and build people to, to live on these things and dependence of good things like that? Well, I, you, you get it? Be encouraged. The thing that you have to do this week, if it's truly imaging God, whether it's at home or in, in whatever you do, you, if, you, if you leverage it rightly, you'll declare something about God and you'll find a deeper joy and meaning in it. Like if I don't do my job this week, then there's a sense in which there will be a beautiful picture of God that's missing. So here's where I think when I say industrialized society has changed this. Last time we saw that like, you, you don't really think of work in terms of anything other than money, but now we think in terms of like, specialization in the word like career. And the one main reason that that definition of work is so unhelpful is because it's so new. In fact, until the 19th century, most work was done exclusively around the home. It was almost entirely agrarian in nature, right? It was farming, feeding people, and it was done in close proximity to the home unit, if not actually inside the home unit. And so where people worked and what people did to image God by, again, sustaining life was done in close proximity and almost always in deep partnership with the family. Like the idea, I mean, think about it. Think of a commute, right? Going to work. That's a relatively new term. No one did that a few hundred years ago. It's new. Technology has created it. And it's changed everything. It's changed architecture. It's changed uh, it's changed city planning. It's changed education. I mean, think about it. Horace Mann, we've named one of our schools in our city about this guy. He, he revolutionized this. And so even education isn't something that existed as it does now before about 1837. The way he said is that, I love one of my favorite quotes from Mann. He says, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. 
got nothing to do with anything. It's just really, I want you to get the idea of who this guy is, right? <laughs> this, guy built, this guy built education, right? This is, structures were built by him. He argued that universal public education was the best way to turn unruly American children into disciplined, judicious citizens of a republic. His intellectual progressivism is basically the foundation for what we understand as modern education. You had maybe, but at that particular time, we, we started to see more like schoolhouses pop up, one-room schoolhouses. Before then, they were rarer, and most, what, most education took place in the home, and it was built around the trade that that home or family was invested into. And this has changed everything. Even, even if you're a teacher, like people haven't been doing that for very long. You, like there wasn't such thing as a principal 300 years ago. There wasn't a football coach, right? 300, you get what I'm saying? Like things that were like, oh, that's, that's a thing. It wasn't a thing. This has happened and it's happening again with the invention of microprocessors. Don't miss that. Most jobs won't even exist 100 years from now. They didn't exist 100 years ago. And so we can't even really define work helpfully, biblically, if we use industrialized standards. The way you know this is the way people talk about, this is one of my favorite phrases, whether or not you have a quote-unquote real job. Right? Do you have a real job? Get a real job. Heard this? Now, don't worry. This is simply the values of our culture infiltrating our concept of what it means to really serve humanity for its flourishing for our joy and for god's glory and so we like hey get a real job and what do they mean by that right what does that mean a real job think about that think about the jobs that we would say that's not a real job right and we kind of wear that as shame right if you're an entrepreneur unemployed right somebody will tell you get a real job like you're cultivating new things right who does stuff like that? Who makes new things where there was not a thing? Get it? But we'll go, whoa, 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 you don't, you don't work on a, on a time scale or a pay scale like the rest of industrialized society. You need to get a real job. And there's a sense in which until you go out and get a real job and become a nine-to-five employee, you're, you're not doing it right. I'll encourage you. I don't have a real job. I'm one of these people. And yet, there is a group of people called the church, and they love Jesus so much, and they have affections for him so deep, and they want to have deeper affections for him, and they want others to have affections for Jesus so much that they pay me to talk about Jesus, lead them towards Jesus, and then lead them to lead others toward Jesus. It's not a real job. <laughs> I, I, I mean, <laughs> so a few months ago, uh, my, uh, this is a while back, I guess, for instance, my, my wife has an education degree, and so she's gone back to teaching. Uh, one of her, she has multiple part-time jobs. This is our mistake. We're working through this. Um, so, like, she has one part-time job is that she uh, has built up kids' connections and is raising up leaders to teach the gospel to kids. Come talk to me. It's awesome. We want to share the gospel with kids. Um, she's done that. And then our other part-time job is she has built some very robust, secure paper trails for our finances and built that system and is running. It's pretty awesome. But then she has a degree in education, so she went back to teaching part-time. And when we get together every night with our family, uh, we, we, with, with all the, you know, the, the girl, we, we, this is something, if you've been at our house at night after dinner, we have to stop and go do this. And we pray, thank God for, hey, what do we need to thank God for? What do you want to ask God for? And one of the things a few months ago we were praying for as Shelby was beginning uh, to go back into to education, was teaching, um, we're praying for, for mom to have, to have peace and, and, to, and to, to have, you know, less stress and so that she would do her job well. And, uh, and, and in the middle of those prayer requests, my youngest goes, that's not fair. Why doesn't daddy have to get a job? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trust me, I know all the jokes. I only, work, I only work half a day a week. But ask yourself, how long has my job been around? Making much of Jesus and training other people to love Jesus. It doesn't bother me. Because it's actually a profound gospel witness. People will ask, like, you, you seriously? Like, what do you do in the week? And I'm like, I tell people about Jesus. And it's a profound gospel declaration, isn't it? 
The Bible says that when we pay someone like a, a pastor elder, it says a worker is worth his wages. And it's a gospel declaration that the people of God love the word of God and the gospel of God so much that we will make sure someone will not drop the ball on this one. He will stand up and remind us of God's goodness. And we love the gospel so much that we will make sure we hire someone to tell us about it, to equip us to tell others about it. I don't have a real job. You... you you get paid to preach and teach about Jesus? Yeah, the worker is worth his wages. And something profound about the church, remember the hermeneutic, the declaration of the gospel in a community of people? It's worth it to us. We value it so highly. And you even see that. Did you catch that? He says, like, I could have taken this. Now, I point this out because this for us is, is a strategy of church planting. Did you catch that? He says, we weren't idle when we were with you in verse 8. We, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We didn't feel entitled to do that. But instead, we worked and we, we tried the best we could to not be a burden to any one of you. Now, this is beautiful. This is for us is a picture of church planting. We saw this when he had received a gift from Philippi to go and plant churches. He had received gifts um, to, to go bless people in Jerusalem and even to be sent out into Macedonia. And so here's, this is a picture of church planting. We, we set aside and we wanted to raise up support so that when we get a chance to share the gospel in a new place, we don't like say, hey, Jesus loves you. That'll be $55, right? Not helpful. And so this is what we do. And so this is a beautiful thing you can like begin to celebrate. We as a church have gotten to, in the last, I mean, I can say this, I don't want to jinx us, but like trust Jesus in this. Uh, we've been paying our own bills as a church for the last four months. And so we began uh, by raising money to to build up some resources, to begin to minister in our city. And you group of people, and most of you, here's the funny thing, you're all millennials and you don't give. And you know what? That's not true here. We're declaring something powerful. Get it? This is our strategy or ecclesiology, the picture of church planting right here, right? We want to we give generously. This is what we as a church do. And he says, even when we were with you, we... We had the right to claim that. I mean, it could have, the worker's worth his wages, but, but instead of doing that, we want to declare a selfless view of work. We could have drawn a salary. We could have been paid for it. But instead, they wanted to do something else and declare something powerful. And so this picture of a real job doesn't help us understand what really imaging God in work is. Now, I'm okay with that. Again, because I get a, opportunity for a gospel declaration and i would encourage you maybe if you don't have a quote-unquote real job you might also people are like why don't you have a real job and he's like well i'm imaging the character of god in my restorative work what are you doing <laughs> that wasn't meant to be so snarky <laughs> dealing with things here i'm seeing a therapist i'll be okay but remember, the, one of the ways that a false view of work begins to be visible is the way that ultimately men and women start to work together. Remember, we as men and women are meant to tell a story about God's good design. And we regularly break that. We bust that. And we desire other things. We don't want the thing God wants for us. And we, we want things ourselves. And we typically trade, as Romans 1 tells us, we trade God's good design for our own good design. We, we trade what's true for a lie. And instead of glorifying God the creator, we really want the glory for ourselves as the creation. And we regularly rebel against his good design. And remember when I told you, when you think, think of work only in stri strictly in terms of money, it starts to destroy men and women relations, right? Like if someone's caring for a child, and it becomes animosity, like you're not getting paid, as though that's not work, right? The same thing happens with industrialization. Think about it this way. There was no such thing as a commute 300 years ago. We saw how capitalism messes up these relationships with men and women, right? Tell a woman who's raising children in the home, they're not working, tests it. But the same thing is true when we think about an industrialized society. So I'm going to put this, this is going to be provocative for a second, but I want you to hang with me, okay? And I added a quote here, just that a woman's place is in the home. I attributed that quote to someone who doesn't have a biblical definition of the home. I put that in there just in case you wouldn't like screenshot me standing by a screen that just said <laughs> a woman's place is in the home. Like, that's not. Like, where did that come from? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? 
that comes from a, a place where it assumes something about the man. This assumes that a man's place is not in the home. Again, remember, a few hundred years ago, work would have been right around your home, right? Children would have been involved in whatever work that cultivated the earth and, and kept people sustained and alive. It's only in the last few hundred years that technology has allowed us to have degree, or like, uh, like degrees of work and degrees of separation between the home and the workplace so that now a person gets up and goes to work. And naturally, if, if, if a woman desires to care for children, then that means sustaining that care is someone who goes to work. When the workplace isn't around the home, it means you've got to go somewhere. And listen, man, my biggest problem isn't where a woman belongs. My biggest problem is what this statement says about where a man belongs. And we are reaping the whirlwind on this one. Like a caveman who thinks his only role in the world is to like provide food and shelter for a person are you kidding how low a bar have, do we have here do you see like do you see this this is this is an idea built around work being defined by industrialization okay men if you want to keep messing up people then keep abdicating responsibility in the home like your father adam keep being a deadbeat in your home keep trying that and see how endeared you are towards your family, your wife, and others around you. Get it? And the place, when we, when we start to misapply the gospel to work, the first place it starts to destroy is relationships between men and women. Right? It happened, in, it happened for Adam and Eve, and it happens here. When we're not imaging God together, one of the first places you see conflict arise is between men and women. And they no longer see themselves as partners they see themselves as competitors god help us they see themselves as enemies to be conquered to be oppressed to be quieted think of it this way this is the way he's did you, did you catch how he says it look look as for you connect the dots in verse 13 do not grow weary in doing good so he just told us what work ought to look like and then he creates a, a, a form of contrast between people who have a bad view of work, and then he says, now you, you, you ought to work like this. And so he defines work as, did you catch this? Do not grow weary in doing good. D don't miss that. Do you, remember, do you remember God's work? Do you remember his first work? He created things, and the last crowning achievement of, of, his, of his work week was that he created human beings to image himself, to multiply, and, and to declare his character all across creation. Do you remember that? And after every single work day, did you, see, did you catch what he did? I hate my job. My boss is a bum. No, every single work day ended with God saying, it's good. Oh, this is good. Look at this image being born to the world and people. It's good. And so did you catch it? Did you connect the dots. He says, look, don't grow weary in doing what? What's good? You want to know what's good? We image our Father, our Creator. That's how you image God. Don't miss that. The way that God imaged, like demonstrated Himself to the world was as a Father. Okay, dads. He says, don't grow weary in doing good, imaging God's goodness. So here's what I would say to all of you, dad or mom or man, woman, child. If your vocation takes up so much energy that you don't have any energy left to do what's truly good, you failed. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care who promoted you, hired you. If you don't have the energy, did you catch that? If you are weary, if you've poured yourself out into things such that you no longer have energy or excitement or enthusiasm to do what characterizes the Father in the world, you failed. You don't look like God your Father. You look like Adam your Father. Look, if you're imaging God in your vocation to the point where you're not imaging God as a loving and caring parent, for example, or even a loving, caring member of a household, you're doing it wrong. Do you see Paul's definition? He contrasts it with the view of work that was busybodying or, or, or mooching off of people. And then he said, no, you can be doing something that's good and demonstrates the character of God. As for you, he says, do not stop doing good. Here's the catch. You can have a real job and do no good. You can have a real job fit right into an industrialized society, have a career, specialize, advance, 
and still, and still at the end of the day, you know what this feels like, right? To look back at the end of the day and go, I mean, do, do you, at the end of the day, do you go, like, it's so good, this work that I get to do, it's so good, it images the Father. Get it? You can get a real job and, and still do no good. Now here's something powerful we have to teach. Now I'm going to take a couple minutes before I land the plane on the ways in which he says, now, now here's how you regard people who do this. Um, and so I'm going to take some selfish time here to explain what's important for us. One of the coolest stories about First and Second Thessalonians, I've shared this with you, is how Paul planted the church and then because of a riot he had to leave and yet God took care of the church even without Paul. So some of you know this, but what's scheduled for us, something we've tried to build into the system, is I will be going on sabbatical for June, July, and August. I'm going to disappear for three months. And I'll give you three reasons, or two reasons why, and I'll kind of point to, you know, the second one, which is the least important, is this. Uh, one of the things that I believe, like, that God has called me to be is to pour my life out here until he does, like, takes me away. And I've got, like, 30 years, give or take. Roughly, you do them, I don't, yeah. And what that means is, what we've seen is that like, the churches who have a sabbatical policy every five to seven years for their teaching staff have exponentially longer tenures. So you know this, like a pastor that doesn't have a sabbatical policy built into his teaching schedule, they usually come and go about every five to ten years. That's the tenure length. And pastor comes and preaches and teaches and goes to another church, usually bigger right? Let's be honest. About every five to ten years. And that's their sabbatical. Their fresh start is going to another place. And, man, I, I'm just committed to being here till I die. There are Paul-type missionaries that go from place to place and plant churches, and they're, I think they're Timothy-type missionaries that, like, go and die in Ephesus. And that's what I want to do here. And I want to, like, I want to lead people towards that. I want to set a pace for a long lovely ministry in these people, amongst these people that God gives us. And that's about 30 years. And that means that over the next 30 years, I want to set a pace to be here as long as possible. I want to raise up leaders to take my place. Don't, this, that means the guy that's going to preach the gospel at my funeral is probably going to be born in the next five to ten years possibly from one of you, possibly from someone we don't know yet who maybe doesn't even know the Lord. And so, I mean, don't mess him up, all right? <laughs> he better point to Jesus over my dead body. I mean, he better like look at the coffin and say, look at Jesus. Think about that. I'm going to get to bury many of you. And it might be that you get to bury me. And so we want to invest towards that. And I want to work accordingly. But the main reason we see here pictured in Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians, as a, as a church planter, we kind of dropped in here parachute style. The byproduct of doing that means that a lot of stuff that happens in the life of our church is built around me. And it just so happens that if I read Paul right, I don't know if you got this, he was only there for a little bit and he had to leave. And what a humbling and yet Jesus-glorifying thing. They thrive without him. And so one of the best things I think our church could have is an extended period of time on a regular basis without me. Chance you get to be the church. Don't outsource the church work to the pastor, but you get to be the church. And this will teach us something that I think Paul, by example, taught these people. He had some admonition. He had some, like, hey, encouragement. You need to do this, do that. Stand firm in the gospel. Hold tightly to the gospel. And he even says, like, dude, if someone doesn't do what we said in this letter, distance yourself from that person. But that just means that if we're going to follow this example and actually see the fruitfulness that the Thessalonians saw, that means you've got to get me out of the way. A lot of stuff is built around me, and it just so happens I want everything built around Jesus. And there's some things that I can't happen while I'm around. So I'm done with that. Just wanted to, like, the model of these letters is something that we're even trying to incorporate into the life of our church healthily. Now, this rare, I know that's strange, what's that about? I'd love to answer those questions for you. Very few uh, churches do this, but that's because very few churches actually see a pastor stay tenured as their pastor for like three decades. 
And that's what we're aiming for. So, back to the text. As for you brothers, don't grow weary in doing this. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of the person. And then he says, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. I remember there was a, somebody had asked me this some years ago uh, about, like, what are the accountability groups that exist in the life of your church? And we talked about how the gospel shapes us and this and that. And, and I was like, kind of, what do you mean by that? And what they really meant was, who are the people that, like, you expose sin to, confess sin to, and, and they point you to the gospel? And I was like, oh, you mean friends. And what we see here is that, and I just want to push on you, if the people you call friends haven't disagreed with you recently, challenged you recently, haven't pointed out things that rob you of gospel joy recently, they're not your friends. They're using you. And God help you if that's what's going on with you. Like if you don't have people that you challenge to say, hey, look, this isn't glorifying Jesus. It doesn't bring joy and flourishing in humanity. It doesn't glorify God. And if you don't do that, then friend, you're using them. You're, hanging, you're letting them hang around so you can feel good about yourself. Because here's the elephant in the room on this last part, isn't it? It says like, it says, hey, if this person doesn't do this thing, you distance yourself from them, right? And here's the elephant in the room. It's not whether or not you should like distance yourself from people. Instead, it's like, what would it take to have the kinds of relationships where that would actually work? Are there people in your life that you have poured yourself out for so deeply that if they said, hey, I think this is wrong and began to separate themselves from you, it says that you would experience, verse 14, shame. Or would you pack up and find a new group of friends that will worship you just like the last superficial club of people? The elephant in the room in this is not whether or not we can separate ourselves from people and point people towards this. The elephant in the room is like, we don't have relationships like that. We just don't. Right now, you guys, right, if, if this is you, you're sitting there right now, and you have 10 reasons why you're sick of this, right? 10 reasons why you could go do something else, be somewhere else. I mean, the list goes on and on. You're in a broken, fallen world full of sinful people. Good luck finding a spot where there aren't any. It just so happens that we declare something more powerful. Whenever we see that for what it is. And so here's what I would ask. What would it look like for us to have a, a tightly knit community such that if someone, a group of people got together like Matthew 18 and says, hey, I think this is sin. I think this is robbing you of joy. What would it look like for us to have a group of people that you would actually listen? And you'd go, man, man I'm ashamed of that. I'm ashamed of that restore me. Thank you. Thank you for pointing out the thing that I was oblivious to. And the reason why that's so important, and I say just come build this with me. The way we try to experience this is two different things. The first is that we want to have a culture of disciple making so that our, we aspire to every single person who's a part of our church is both being discipled by someone, being, uh, being pushed towards the gospel by someone, and they're also discipling someone else, pushing someone else towards the gospel. And this is the culture that we want to build, and so if you're not doing that, you're, just, you're not in the game. right? This, but the second thing is that the way we want to do this, because we just want to be able to do what Paul tells us to do, because he kind of says, hey, by the way, if you don't do what I say, uh, have nothing to do with, with this person. And so we just want to do what he says here. And the second way we do that is we have a very robust and deep view of membership. We want to walk people towards a kind of deep brotherhood and sisterhood that if someone were to say, hey, this is wrong, you wouldn't immediately become indignant and say you're wrong, but you would say thank you. I illustrate this in a silly way, but it, it goes deeper than this. My wife has the ability to, man, I'm going to owe her for this one. Every time I say this, I owe money. Um, my wife has the ability if like we're hanging out and I have like a like a something in my teeth or like a booger from my nose she can point it out right and that's intimacy when a person can point out something like that but you know what's really crazy now we're at a stage where she'll reach over and just grab it <laughs> I, it freaked me out too man I'm right with you I, I wasn't ready for that I wasn't ready for that kind of intimacy. It takes a special relationship, a special covenant bond between people. 
to be able to lovingly look at people's flaws and then help them out of it. So build this with me. Join me in building this kind of a thing. Where if this group of people said like, hey, I, I, I think this is troublesome, you wouldn't immediately run away from them, but you would embrace them and thank them. Thank you. I, this, it was on my face the whole time, and so I'm so glad you're here. Now I can have that clear. <laughs> you're, you're right. It's hard to make that spiritual. I tried, though. Here's what I would say. If you're waiting to find the perfect people to begin to experience this with, and you're not willing to give your life until they're worthy of it, you haven't heard the gospel. If you're waiting, like I'm going to wait until I meet the perfect people who meet my standards and they're worthy and then I'm going to give my life to them. You haven't heard the gospel. You haven't believed what's true about Jesus. If you're withholding your commitment to people or to this church because, because they're not good enough, then that's evidence that you haven't heard the gospel that shapes this church. If you're waiting for people to be worthy of your sacrifice, you don't know Jesus. Christ did not wait for you to become worthy before he sacrificed himself on your behalf. He did it while you were a mess. And that's the good news. Romans 5 says it this way. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, like maybe someone would die for that kind of person, right? Maybe perhaps a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Christ gave of himself to an unworthy people to glorify God and demonstrate his mercy as he saved us. Look, when you commit yourself to safe causes, right, that meet the standard of your approval, then you're not worshiping Jesus. You're just worshiping the idols of comfort, control, and approval. When you commit yourself to people who are all cleaned up, you don't look like Jesus. But when you lay down your life for people that are a mess, you look like Jesus. And people say, why would you do that? Why would you lay down your life for these people? They're a mess. And you're like, do you know why? Because that's exactly what Christ has done for me. Your withholding of love is evidence that you haven't believed the gospel, or at least in this area, it hasn't changed you or penetrated you. Friend, today, believe. Believe. See his kindness towards you on your worst day and be changed. See his mercy towards you when you least deserved it and then let it change you to extend that mercy to others. See his invitation to accept you and receive you, and you accept that invitation. Look, if you only give yourself to people who deem you worthy or awesome, and it's not about Jesus, it's about your own glory, don't forget this. The church, excuse me, is the modern translation of the gospel. What are you telling people about the gospel? Even if it's not this church, I mean that. Would you do me a favor? Would you point people towards Jesus by laying down your life for a local church? Even if it's, I, I love Jesus enough to where even if it's not this church, fine, go, go find that perfect set of people and do that thing. Would you lay down your life for that? Some of you I know, maybe you're not a believer, you'll say, well, that's a cult. That's, cra- that's, that's some crazy close relationships that have power over you. That's, that's a cult. No, it's not. A cult is when people lay down their lives to prop up their leader. The church is the gathering of people because their leader laid down their life, his life for us. You get it? A cult's when a leader gets you together and you drink all the Kool-Aid, right? And it kills you, okay? That's what a cult is. But the church, the church is the coming together and sending out of people around a person who drank the proverbial Kool-Aid for us. Only it wasn't Kool-Aid. The Bible tells us it was the wrath of God poured out in a cup that he happily drank for us. Oh, friend, don't miss this. This will change everything. This is the grace that remains with you. We don't get together to prop up our leader. Our leader laid down his life to prop us up. And all subsequent leaders, like pastors, they're only worth anything insofar as they also prop up people. The gospel remains with us. This is the very end. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace stays with you. That means that you wake up tomorrow and you say, am I going to exist in my own effort today? No. The grace of Christ is going to be with me. Am I going to put my efforts and put my worth in my achievement? No. Grace is going to be with me. And for a group of people who are always ready to get over things, we're like a broken record in a land of one-hit wonders where the grace of God remains with us and it motivates every single thing we do. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the grace you've demonstrated to me. And I humbly ask that you would demonstrate that grace through me. Um, God, any words that don't point towards you, would you just allow these people to forget? Any, anything that I might have said that distracts them from seeing this finished work on the cross as joy and hope for them, would you just allow them to forget it? Would you allow the enduring memory, the enduring thought, the enduring conviction to be that Christ has done enough, that he has taken our place, and now we display it, we demonstrate it, we translate it to the world. So for some in this room, maybe they're just, uh, maybe there's room in the, people in this room that aren't believers. I'm so glad you brought them here. Would you even now begin to call them to trust? Maybe even the moments that they've been here, they've experienced an eye-opening that their own hearts have been shifted. They've seen your kindness and, and then they're drawing to it. Would you begin to do that? Would you grant us the gift of faith to, to throw off lesser glory and to seek your glory above all else? Give us this faith. Open our eyes to believe that you really have done something so radical that it changes everything we do from our work to our relationships. For the rest of us, we just regularly put our hope and trust in other things. Uh, we regularly surround ourselves with people and circumstances that prop us up that make us look and feel good. Would you allow us to now believe the gospel so deeply that you have, you have Jesus, relinquished all comfort so that we would experience comfort? Would you allow us to begin to do that as well? Uh, let us be a people marked by this, uh, distinct in the world because of our view of this. We don't let any other trends or cultural moves tell us who we are or what we do, but instead our work defi is, is, is defined simply by testifying to your finished work for us in Jesus Christ. Let that be enough this morning as we respond and declare the worth of your blood on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.